Welcome back to another episode of The Exceptional Educator. We interview experts to uncover best practices to help children with learning differences thrive. I'm Anne-Marie Mori, your host from BayTreeBlog.com. Our guest today is Dr. Alexis Filippini. Dr. Filippini is an educational consultant with an expertise in positive behavioral support. She's worked with hundreds of teachers, and today she'll be sharing strategies on how to structure teaching to help students develop calm and focus in the classroom. She also shares strategies for responding to students' misbehavior in ways that promote learning and self-regulation. Stay tuned because Dr. Filippini will be sharing some free resources she's making available to listeners of the podcast. We'll share the links at the end of the interview and in the show notes, available at baytreeblog.com slash podcast and search Zen of Behavior. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Alexis Filippini today. Dr. Filippini is an educational consultant who works with schools and after-school programs. Her strength-based approach to student success grows out of her own experience as a reading intervention teacher and a behavioral clinician. Teachers and families enjoy her hands-on building on the best workshops on literacy, inclusion, classroom management, and more. She's currently the Dean of Teaching and Learning K-8 at the Bentley School in Oakland, California. Alexis earned her PhD in special education with an emphasis in cognitive science from UC Santa Barbara. I had the personal pleasure of being her student when she was an associate professor at San Francisco State University in California. Um, and Alexis is one of those rare teachers who can inspire and inform and really makes you a better teacher. So I'm thrilled that she's joining us today in our podcast. Thank you, Anne-Marie. It is such a pleasure to be talking with you like this. Um, I really appreciate the warm welcome. Great. So Alexis, um, you have a great story about how you got interested in behavior. Well, one of my first real teaching jobs after summer camp and other sort of beginner uh, educational activities, I was leading a reading intervention group and um, it was my first day and I took the class, four or five first graders from their, the, my little group from their room, and we walked across the campus into the library, and as soon as we got inside, one of the little girls took a look at me with big wide eyes and shouted, you're scary, and proceeded to hide under the table. And of course, this wreaked havoc with everyone else, and I had no idea what to do. So I spent most of our time together trying to cajole her and calm her and anything to get her out from under the table and the other kids from the stacks um, and back to the group. We eventually managed to get in maybe 10 minutes of, of ward work before we walked back to class, but I felt pretty defeated. And um, despite the fact that I was extremely well-trained in the reading aspect, I really had no idea what to do. So, so I went did, back. What did oh. you do at this point? Well, I walked them back to the classroom and, and tried to retain some sense of, of dignity. Um, and then when I um, returned to my university, I was in school at the time, I went straight to my mentor and told him the story and said, what do I do? And of course, you know, he gave me um, a stack of books and, um, you know, lots of encouragement and some great ideas and sent me off to observe some other teachers. And that was the beginning of my experiences with classroom management. Great. And so I, I know one of the things that you have um, taught and helped other teachers with is this idea of positive behavioral support. Um, and when I kind of look this up on Pinterest or I, I, you know, pop into somebody's classroom, usually it seems like what I see are these, you know, systems of having cards or clothespins with red and yellow and, and green cards that show where the student's behavior is at a certain time. But it, it's more than that, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly positive behavioral support is? Absolutely. I see those all over. And um they have definitely their strengths and weaknesses, that system. But the system of red, red, yellow, green, sometimes blue, uh, is not necessarily a part of positive behavioral supports, but for a number of reasons has gained the most visibility as an aspect of PBS. Um, and I think that a lot of people equate it with PBS when, in fact, the idea of positive behavioral supports, or you might hear PBIS, positive behavioral intervention supports, is much more. It's really an approach or a framework to classroom management and school-wide community. And the, the core tenet is that it is a proactive and preventative approach. 
Great. So it's proactive and it's preventative. And um, what does the research tell us about incorporating these methods into our instruction? There's a large body of evidence converging from different fields for a number of years now that shows that positive behavioral supports, different approaches but within that same framework, have dramatic impacts on student outcomes. And the evidence looks at outcomes like student referral rates, student suspension rates, um, and, and a number of other related measures. And that we see in schools that have these systems in place, we see decreases in referral rates and suspension rates. And a particularly important and relevant aspect is we know that for students of color and students who are low income, those rates are disproportionately high. So having a solid positive behavioral supports framework in place really benefits everyone. Oh, that's great. And I know one of the things that you've talked about is that positive behavioral support is sort of shifting our framework around behavior from the idea instead of punishing students that we're teaching them. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that might look like? Absolutely. So that that is a hugely important aspect of this approach. And the idea that when we interact with a student around behavior, um, when we're what some might call disciplining a student, our goal is really to help them develop appropriate positive behaviors that will serve them well, not only in school, but in the rest of their lives. And the research is very clear that punishment is not effective in long-term change, right? And, and punishment, to be clear, does not necessarily mean you know, something extreme like corporal punishment, but rather um, an aversive approach. So when I'm talking about teaching, I'm talking about how do we provide children with the skills and the practice to develop appropriate behaviors. Okay. And so sort of sort of some of the common aversives that I know with my students is is the ones that get sent out of class. Is that an example or being reprimanded or mm-hmm. um, and then so tell me what does teaching look like? And I, I love this idea that it's all about teaching self-regulation. Um, so what are we teaching the students to do? Absolutely. Well one of the most important foundational aspects is teaching the students to be more self-aware. Because without that self-awareness, you can't really control or manage your, your actions if you're not aware of your actions and what's leading to them. So that's really a hugely important aspect of this. Um, with PBS approach, we're modeling, we're practicing all kinds of pro-social behaviors with students. And so what are some examples of those pro-social behaviors? So some examples might be, some, some simple um, examples might be, listening to others, right? Um, And it could be listening to your teacher, listening to your classmates while they're speaking, um, listening to somebody when you're having a disagreement on the yard. Another example, again, very basic, being safe, right? Keeping our hands to ourselves, using scissors the correct and safe way, um, anything involving, involving safety is huge. Great. So those are those things that, yeah, they're really important. And and like you were saying, you know, if the students underneath the desk, we're not going to get a lot done. Um, and if we're not listening and if we're not being safe, then how can we get anything done with our lesson? Um, and one of the ideas that I love that you talk about, Alexis, is this proactivity. Um, so what does proactivity exactly look like? Because um, I know sometimes we get caught up in the moment and it's hard to be thinking ahead and we're just sort of where we are right now. So what does that look like? Right. Great question. So perhaps another time we can come back and talk to talk about reacting to behaviors. Yeah, but okay. proactivity is really about setting the students up for success and being extremely clear in your expectations. I like to think about adults and many of us, if we're entering into a new situation, a new job, perhaps a new social event, um, we don't know what to expect we're a little bit nervous. And that's a natural reaction even as an adult. Now, as a child who has way less life experience, they may not only be nervous coming to school and having a new teacher, a new classroom, but they may have very different expectations or unclear expectations in their previous schooling experiences or at home. And so it's the teacher's job to make those expectations really clear to the student. Great. And so tell me about the process of setting clear expectations to students. So what should that look like? What should we be aiming for? I really like following the responsive classroom approach. And there there are some who believe that responsive classroom and PBS are at odds. 
And I think a lot of that grows out of the same misunderstandings of PBS that we touched on earlier in terms of the punitive red, yellow, green system. Um, but responsive classroom takes a, a really nice approach to setting expectations. And in that model, the teacher helps the students identify their hopes and dreams for the year. And this is something that can be done, in my opinion, at all ages. I've done this with adults, um, but definitely K through six um, and with some tweaking up into adolescence as well. So setting hopes and dreams for the year. What do you hope? What do you dream? What do you wish for as a student? And based on those hopes and dreams, then the class comes together and establishes expectations. And so the teacher might ask, fourth grade, let's talk about your hopes and dreams. What do we need to do together as a class to make those happen? And then she elicits a brainstorm and the students all share their ideas and the students will come up with infinitely more rules than you or I put together could ever come up with. They'll need some guidance, of course, and so once we have a brainstorm established, then the teacher helps them first by framing the rules in the positive. So kids tend to really like, no this, no that, no, no running, no being mean, and um, especially if they've been in a school that, that doesn't use this approach. So the teacher first starts by helping them shape those into the positive. Um, so instead of no running in the hallway, we would flip that to walk in the hallway. And then helps them group the, the rules into categories. And there are different ways to do that depending on the age of the student. But in, in some fashion, you get the, that brainstorm grouped into categories. And from there, you come up with your four or five classroom rules that are positively worded, child-friendly, and five or fewer. Great. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I know you, um, I know you do a lot of work right now, but every now and then you still get an opportunity to work with students. Mm -hmm. Um, and you were just telling me a great story from, I think last month about proactivity and how it can really work for you and how, when that gets sort of, um, glossed over, then there can sometimes be some, um, less than desirable outcomes. Yes, I remember that story well. And the example I just gave of setting expectations is something you would typically do in the beginning of the year. But you could certainly do mid-year if you were resetting. Um, but you can set expectations in in many moments, if you will. So, so I work occasionally once a week. I work with a small group of first graders doing word work. And I meet them in their classroom and we walk to the library together. And typically, I stop outside of the library and make sure that I have all their attention. And very quickly, this takes about 40 seconds, ask them to remind me of the library expectations. And I'll say, we have all this exciting word work to do today. There are going to be other kids in the library. What are the rules in the library? And they'll quickly popcorn, you know, be quiet, uh, be gentle with the materials, stay with the teacher. And um, we review those very, very quickly. The key to that is making sure that I have eye contact and that they're all with me. And from there, I usually do something like give everybody a high five or some way to acknowledge each of them before we walk in. And then we walk in and we sit down and, and we proceed with our activity. And one day I was running late. The class was late coming back from PE or something. And so I hustled over to the library and we just walked straight in and I handed them their materials. And it was just off. It wasn't disaster. It was not the your scary experience of my uh, early teaching, but it was it was off, and I had a couple kids kind of doing one thing, and a couple doing another, and somebody picking on somebody else, and telling ah that's not how you spell that, and um, and I realized wow I didn't set expectations, so we got off to a bumpy start. Right. And I love that you're willing to share this story, uh, Alexis, <laughs> because, you know, you're the, this expert and you're this person that, you know, teachers turn to when they're having a problem. Um, and I think it's really um, it's nice to know that that we're not alone um, and that this stuff is tough um, and that we need to keep working on it. But here's the part that I love the most about the story. So what do you do at this point? So, um, you know, some people I think your inclination would be to um, start yelling, right? Like mm -hmm. this is what you need to be doing right now. What would you rec how did how do you get yourself out of this situation? Well, the first thing, and you nailed it, the instinct is to is to yell or in some other way, you know, you you know you need to get control of the situation. Um, so the first step for me personally, my technique is to take a couple deep breaths. And that can be hard to do because as you see things escalating, you're worried. But honestly, the 15 seconds of deep breaths things are going to get that much worse and, and you will be better positioned. And why are you taking the deep breaths? What's what's the goal there for you? 
Because at that moment, I was frustrated. And I know if the students hear frustration in my voice, they're not going to respond well. So I know that I need to have a calm, clear, direct voice when I speak to them. Okay. So in that process of taking those deep breaths, you're sort of acknowledging what's going on for yourself, Mm -hmm. getting yourself back in control before you start connecting with your students again. So Mm -hmm. you take those deep breaths and then what's the next step? And then I would say, class, stop, pencils down or whatever it is, materials down, eyes on me. Um, depending on who I'm working with, if the class has a particular, you know, crisscross applesauce or eyes and hands or, you know, whatever kind of catchphrase they use, I'll, I'll try to use that. And then I'll ask them, what, what do you notice about what's going on right now? And ideally, they will be able to notice, well, you know, we're kind of all over the place or, or you know, um, describe what they're doing. And I'll say, okay, what are we here to try to do? And, you know, we'll talk about we're here to study our words and do, do word work. And, um, and then I'll say, okay, let's go back to the beginning and, and, and start again. And this time, how are we going to approach our work and elicit from them whatever it is that I'm, I'm trying to get at? So calmly with, with focus. And um, I might, alternatively, I might say, I might collect all their materials and just say, we're going to have a do-over and just lay out the expectations. I'm going to pass out your materials. You are going to start sorting your words. And this is a time to talk in whisper voices, but not a time to shout or whatever the expectation is. And if things were really hairy, I actually would collect the materials and go back outside and completely start again. And, and why is that? Why would you change the space that you were in? I would do that in order to really clearly demarcate the learning time. And so if, if we, we haven't been learning and it's not working and I really need a crystal clear change, um, then I would, I would take us outside and just start again, especially in this particular case where we have that routine and I'm the one who broke routine and um, that was sort of the, what made things not work. So that, that's why I would take us outside again and not in a punitive, um, you know, we're going outside because you can't behave yourself, but, um, but rather in a, in a very calm, neutral, we're here to learn more words and we're not learning more words. So we're going to go back out to the front and we're going to try again. Oh, I love that. And I like that this kind of circles back to this idea of the self-awareness piece that we're trying to teach students. Mm-hmm. So in that day and what could have just felt like a disaster or something that didn't feel successful for you as the teacher is this not only are you doing that word work with the student, but you're building that self-awareness. Um, mm-hmm. So those seem like even deeper lessons that you're imparting on those students. So that's why I love that story that you tell. Um, so I love this reset. And, um, one of the things that you and I have been talking about is, um, sort of making it explicit about how you do the reset. Um, and you're going to have that on your website, right? When this goes live Mm -hmm. um, for our listeners. So, um, in our show notes for everybody, you can link right on over to, um, Alexis's website and she's got that for you. Um, so go and check that out. I'm really excited about, um, having Alexis sharing that tool for you guys. Um, you know, another thing that I love about this story is that this idea that, you know, classroom teachers either have great behavioral management skills or they don't, uh. right? Either you got the chops or you don't. Um, uh-huh. And I feel like that story sort of shows how much you've evolved. You know, you started as this small group instructor and here you are doing it again. And all of a sudden you have such a different outcome. So what does that sort of tell us about instincts and research and how does that all come together? Hmm, that is a really interesting question. I think a lot of people are drawn to teaching because they have good instincts or they enjoy kids or they feel rewarded by it. But almost no one arrives at teaching with a, a evidence-based set of skills, right? So you can, you can come into teaching with some advantages already and then build on them. Um, but you can also come into teaching with, with just the very basics and build on them. And I think of teachers the same way I think about students, with a growth mindset. I really recommend Carol Dweck's work. She has a book called Mindset that some of your listeners may know. And the same idea applies to teachers, that there's always 
an opportunity to, to grow. And frankly, my whole work is based on that. And I work with teachers who've been teaching for 30 plus years. And the ones who are still eager and interested in growing are the ones who have not only the most successful classrooms, but the most rewarding, fulfilling professional lives. Okay. So, and, so I love this idea that we can grow as teachers um, and as professionals. And so if you are you know, a first year classroom teacher, and that you're feeling frustrated and you don't feel like you quite have the instincts for this yet or the chops yet, what would be some of your, your takeaway recommendations for somebody who's, who's really grappling um, with these issues right now? For a beginning teacher who's feeling really frustrated, I would start by taking a moment to look at what's working and what's not working. So being really honest, I find that teachers have a harder time evaluating their strengths or noticing their strengths than they do their challenges. Um, so, so when I say honest, I, I, I'm actually really more worried about making sure that you are paying attention to what is going well, because um, I'm sure you're well aware of what's not going well. So taking a moment to take stock in your classroom and, and noticing what is working. What times of the day does your classroom management feel fluid? Are there certain lessons where it feels like it goes well? Are there certain days of the week? and trying to find what what is working. So that's where I would start and recognize that and build on that. Most first year or, or novice teachers have difficulty with transitions. Um, that's hard. Um, that's hard for students, especially young students or students with disabilities. Um, but also middle schoolers and high schoolers as well. Transitions can be rough. Um, Something I'm seeing a lot of right now in classrooms across the grade span is teachers trying to implement consequences, but who don't have clearly established expectations. And so that becomes difficult because the consequences can feel really random to the student if clearly established expectations aren't there to, to link to. Right. And what's the consequence if, if a student perceives a consequence as being what's going to be the outcome if a student feels like there's this consequence that feels very random and arbitrary? Right. And that's when we start getting attitudes like, well, my teacher just failed me or, well, my teacher just sent me out of the room where there's a total dissociation between student behavior and, and outcomes. Okay. So there's a, a really important connection between establishing expectations and establishing and implementing logical consequences. So for a beginning teacher, I would really focus on establishing clear expectations in, in the classroom. Okay, great. And then, you know, you were saying that really it cuts across grades, but transitions can be really difficult. And what would be, you know, if I'm thinking to my own teaching and I'm realizing, gosh, you know, when I'm seeing um, some challenging behavior, it's at those moments of transition. So what would you recommend that I do? So I, I'm hearing that I should take stock of, you know, when are the transitions working and trying to find some commonalities there. But what other specific recommendations do you have for me, Alexis? I would notice which transitions are the bumpiest and try to identify where the problem is. Is the student surprised by the transition? So maybe you begin your sessions with an activity that they really like and they're really engrossed. And then when it's time to transition to doing their less favorite activity, they're kind of surprised and attached to the first activity. Maybe the challenge is that um, the student isn't really prepared. So may, sometimes materials are a big issue that the transition breaks down because the teacher or the student has to stop and find materials and that can lose the flow. So trying to notice where the breakdown is and then often we can solve a lot of problems that look like behavior problems by altering the environment. So having the materials ready in a basket ready to go or setting up a, a timer so that both you and the student have ample warning that a transition is coming. Okay, and then linking back to expectations, having a frank conversation with the student about transitions, you know, could look something like, I've noticed that our transitions are kind of bumpy. How do they feel to you? And depending on the student's response, let's work together to figure out a way to make them more smooth so we can make the most of our of our time together and, and coming with some explicit agreements. And you may find that your student needs a stretch break. 
So when it's time to transition, they stand up and they stretch, and that can also buy you time if you have something you need to set up that can't be set up in advance. Okay, makes that makes perfect sense. And I love when I've, you know, I've taken some of your workshops on on these topics around behavior. Um, and one of the ideas that was really take home for me, and I know it's really basic, is the idea that behavior serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think back to my own students, um, you know, I have one student in particular that really has a tough time transitioning. And I realized it was only a tough transition when he moved from doing some, we'd go to the reading nook and do some really fun, pleasurable reading together into moving to something that was much more challenging for him. Um, and in my own reflection, I can think, oh my gosh, there's, he's really trying to communicate something to me. Um, so what can you tell us about behavior and its functions? That is a great question. And also a nice example of converging evidence and approaches from different fields. So the field of positive behavior supports and particularly functional behavior assessment, working with students with significantly challenging behaviors. Um, And this is something that you'd see behavior specialists doing, really going into incredible detail in observing students and taking data and establishing possible functions for behavior. But everyday teachers can learn from those resources as well. And teachers are, in my opinion, artists as well as scientists, right? So, um, you know, the art piece is a little bit instinct. um, It's very creative. But the science part is teachers are observers. You are constantly observing your students and taking data, whether or not you're doing that with a clipboard and a pencil or making mental notes. I do strongly encourage clipboard and pencil as well, but maybe we can come back to that. So the idea of function, you know, we're looking at behavior as any behavior um, has a purpose. And I, I just want to take a time out to clarify. When I say behavior, I'm referring to any observable action. Behavior has come to mean bad behavior or unwanted behavior. That student has behaviors, right? But beha- I'm, I'm behaving in a certain manner right now. You're behaving. Right. We're, we're, we're all behaving right now. Right. Uh, so, so to be clear, when I'm talking about behavior, I really mean any action that a student is taking. And we can look for the function or the purpose of that. And like you just said, Anne-Marie, often it is communicating something. Another point of convergence with responsive classroom approach that I really like is they use the language that students need belonging, significance, and fun. They use the word fun synonymously with engagement. So when I first learned that, I immediately thought, oh, you know, that those are great examples of functions of behavior. So a student who is exhibiting a challenging behavior is often communicating that they don't feel a sense of belonging or they don't feel a sense of significance or they're not engaged. They're not having fun. And there are, of course, other functions, but um, I, I really liked that that synchronicity between the approaches. And I, I know when you've talked about this idea of that, that all students are searching for significance and belonging and engagement, that if we have, you know, pretty strong classroom management skills in place already, um, that this might be a really neat way to bring our teaching to that next level with the art and the science. Um, so what recommendations would you have for a teacher who's, who's maybe been doing this for a while and, you know, he or she's really got things down? What can they do now? I can imagine walking into a classroom that runs really fluidly, transitions are smooth, students are participating, teacher is not stressed out, right? And and so that's the teacher I'm, I'm thinking about right now. And so for that teacher who's looking for even more growth, I would suggest starting to look more at student autonomy and student choice. And how can you build in self-awareness into what you're doing? And that could look like using a, um, an approach to an academic area, for example, writing that involves a lot of self-reflection. Uh, I know that's something you have a lot of experience with, Anne-Marie, the self-regulated strategy development. And um, in terms of, of behavior and community, starting to give more and more ownership to students. So if you have a classroom meeting, a morning meeting in the responsive classroom parlance, starting to have your students run those meetings and design those meetings and having your students reflect more on, for example, what's going on out in the yard or during break and bringing that back to the classroom and and running meetings 
with each other to discuss what's working and what's not and what the social community is is feeling like. Great. Those are some really good examples. How else might, um, what else can autonomy look like in the classroom, especially if we're talking more about um, some of the more academic um, domains? What could that look like? Some simple steps to take can look like uh, working with students to have choice in what they're doing. And that can be as simple as odds or evens if, if they're doing a set of problems um, as, as a baby step toward more autonomy. Eventually what you can see in a classroom that is really autonomous um, is students working in stations or independently who are to some degree self-directing their learning. So for example, if they're working in a writer's workshop model, they may have a number of pieces that they're working on at the same time. And during writer's workshop time, they may have a choice of which piece they're working on, um, maybe even how they're working on it. Um, but you know, one thing I'd add, Alexis, is I feel like this is so important for students with disabilities because I feel like we, we take away their autonomy so much um, and they really don't feel like they're independent learners. So it seems like this would be even more important for a kid with, with disabilities. Is that right? Absolutely. I completely agree. And I was just having a conversation yesterday about inquiry-based instruction in mathematics classrooms. And there is a feeling among many educators um, or an opinion that high-achieving students are capable of or can do inquiry-based learning, but lower-achieving students need um, direct instruction. And um, there's certainly a time and a place for direct instruction, of, of course. Uh, but because a student is low achieving or has a disability, absolutely they should still be getting this autonomy and choice and experience with inquiry type of instruction. Great. Challenging, but I think you're, I think you're right on there. Um, so I think we've been talking a lot about growth mindsets and we've talked about the, you know, dealing, dealing with some of these issues can be, can be challenging. Um, and that we talked a little bit about the reactivity piece earlier. Um, but what are some of the things that you'd love to see educators sort of cultivating, um, as a mindset when it comes to dealing with, um, challenging behaviors? Empowerment is a word that comes to mind. So both empowering teachers and empowering students. And that's a really important and I think underemphasized approach of positive behavioral supports is the, the teacher is empowered to run their classroom and teach in the way that they really want to teach because they have good systems in place to engage their students and communicate with their students. And the students are empowered to be part of the classroom community. And instead of student empowerment disempowering teachers, which can be a fear, um, in fact, they feed off of each other. And the more that the students are empowered to make decisions and regulate their own behavior, the teachers, in fact, are empowered to teach the, the material that they want and, and need to teach. And, and it's a really... Um, it's a, it's a virtuous circle, right? Um, they have a strong impact on each other. So, you know, it seems to me, Alexis, that teaching is a really tough profession. Um, and I love your idea that it's both a science and an art. Um, and one of the things that I'm most interested in is this idea of sort of the low hanging fruit. What are the things that we can implement in classrooms and schools across the country um, that really make a big difference. And I think one of the things that you talk about is this idea of how you structure your teaching um, and what type of teaching you're doing. And that can make a really big difference. Could you talk about that a little bit? Positive behavior supports are a really important approach to every teacher's toolkit. But of course, having engaging lessons is huge. And there's a, you know, an old saying about the best classroom management plan is a good lesson plan. And there is absolutely some truth to that. The types of teaching that are going to result in high student engagement you know, vary, of course, from grade to grade, subject to subject. But a teacher who is in touch with their students, who is teaching at a just right level for them, so offering challenge but also offering opportunities for success and is finding ways for students to engage in authentic learning 
is going to see fewer behavior issues in their classroom. And so when you combine powerful teaching practices with classroom management practices, that's where you really see the most learning taking place in the classroom. Great. And I know, Alexis, that you've visited a lot of classrooms, especially in your your current position. What are some examples of when you've seen this and you just go, ah, that's it right there? So just the other day, I was in an eighth grade classroom that was engaging in a discussion. So they actually, when I first arrived, they were preparing for a discussion. They were in small groups. And so middle schoolers love to talk, right? So when we talk about strengths-based approaches, they love to talk, let them talk, right? So, so this teacher has structured the class so that they have lots of opportunities to talk. And in their small groups, they came up with discussion questions. And it was very organized um, without going into the details about, about it. Um, there were very clear purposes for the assignment and guidelines that got at the literary analysis piece. And from that, each group developed a discussion question around the text, and then they came together in a circle, and the students led the discussion. The teacher was obviously there, listening, interjecting when necessary, but the uh, one student would raise a question from their group and then call on another student, and subsequently students were calling on each other, and the conversation proceeded around the room. And this was such a great example because it was student-generated, right? They were generating questions that were interesting to them, but it was still very rigorous. It was embedded in a demanding text. Um, They were required to use the text as evidence. It wasn't just sort of chit-chatting about the book. And uh, it was very well-structured. And from a management standpoint, the class knew the routines. So this particular classroom has uh, desks that are on wheels and turn. So when they first arrived, um, there was almost a mutiny of teachers because they really hated them. The kids were wiggling. They were doing bumper cars. I mean, you, you can imagine. So I did a lot of work with the teachers about setting expectations and practicing with the chairs. And um, this particular class I saw, the teacher had a, just a very simple, very quick way of directing the students. Okay, desks in a circle, ready, set, go. They all slid into their circle, not a single bumper car. Um, when they moved into their groups, table groups, ready, set, go. And it was so fluid because it was clearly something that had been practiced. And that lesson to me was a really nice example of authentic, rigorous academics and clear student-oriented classroom management. So Alexis, one of the things that I hear that's most frustrating for teachers is having a quiet classroom. What do you recommend? Yes. So this goes in the category of if you are looking for something to try right now, you can do this. Quiet signals. So some people call them attention grabbers or attention getters. Um, This is hugely important to establishing your classroom. And can I give you a couple of examples? So some that you might hear, um, and I'll give you my opinions about effectiveness in a moment, is the classic Bump, bada, bump, bump. Bump, bump. Right. Thank you. Thank you, class. Right. Um, Or if you can hear me clap once, if you can hear me clap twice, um, you might also see lights being flicked. Um, You might see a raised hand. You might hear a chime. So those are all examples of what I'm talking about. One of the most important things about quiet signals are that you, is that you practice them, right? So I hear a lot of teachers who say, Alexis, I tried a quiet signal just like you said, and it didn't work. And I'll say, well, how many times did you try it? Once. Or more commonly, well, it worked the first two times, and then it never worked again. Because it's new, so the students respond, and then they don't respond, but you don't act like it matters. So then it just kind of fizzles away. So when you establish a quiet signal, it's really important to tell the children what you're doing, why you're doing it, and then practice quite a few times. And they love practicing. So turn to your neighbor, talk about a great movie you saw recently, and then when I ring the chime, then wrap up your sentence and eyes on me. So a couple of other quick tips about it are whatever your silent signal is or your quiet signal, it's most effective if it includes a five to 10 second span for children to stop talking. Think about it as an adult. If you're in a meeting or a PD and 
the facilitator asks you for quiet, they don't expect you to just cut yourself off mid-sentence. They expect you to finish your sentence and come back together as a group. My favorite signals are um, from the responsive classroom approach. I really like the simple raised hand. And in this, the teacher just raises their hand quietly and the students follow suit by finishing their sentence, raising their hand, and stopping talking. This is really nice because you don't have to have all the students' eyes on you because as long as some students see you, they can respond. Um, when I introduce this, I always go around to a few students and say, okay, we're going to come back together as a group in two minutes. Please raise your hand and stop talking when you see me raise my hand. So if you have a few students planted, then you're more likely to get success with that. The chime, do the same thing um, where I'll make sure that a few students are really aware of, of what that means so that they can help me practice it. Um, the Clapping approach, I find most effective if you leave off the, if you can hear me, part, and you simply clap a pattern. So you might go, and then the students, or have them match your pattern. Um, and that takes a little bit of practice. But anything you can do to reduce extra teacher talking is going to be valuable. Um, Alexis, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about restorative justice, and I know this is a topic that's really interesting to you, and how does this tie into our conversation today? I am by no means an expert in restorative justice, so I definitely don't want to oversell myself, but um, it is gaining a lot of traction, especially in big urban school districts, and I do want to take a moment to highlight the some of the ideas that are similar between positive behavior supports and restorative justice, must, much like responsive classroom, um, there is a sense, I think, that, that these different approaches are, are at odds in, in some ways. And um, certainly some of the ideas, for example, restorative justice, the school goes to great lengths to keep students in the classroom, right? Because that's where learning takes place. And to do that, there are a lot of strategies and techniques in place but one of the, the key elements is practice, right? Is clear expectations with the students about what's working. So schools or teachers that are implementing circles as a component of restorative justice, um, of course, if you just started doing that one day, you could get any number of results. It, it could go well, possibly, unlikely. Um, it might go okay. That's probably the most likely. It might be terrible. Um, for a lot of students, that kind of intimacy can be really scary and challenging. And having the principles of positive behavior supports in your back pocket can really help guide you in implementing really any approach um, that your school is taking. But, but restorative justice in particular shares a lot of the same, the same goals with keeping students in the classroom, reducing referrals and disproportionate referrals, and being really student-centered. So it sounds like a lot of these, there are lots of different techniques, and we like to put them into different boxes and have different names, but there's really a lot of things that overlap, and they work together really nicely and lots of different Absolutely. Settings. And one of the things that I found interesting in what you were saying about restorative justice is the idea is that we're kind of moving to a different level, and we've been really talking about how things work at the student level and the classroom level, um, and this seems more like we're talking about a whole um, school-wide effort, um, and we're talking about having administrators on board, and we're all working collaboratively. So what are some other things that you would like to see happening at a school level, or what are some things that administrators can be doing to support um, the community that they're at? The evidence supporting positive behavior supports is absolutely the most strong in schools that are taking a, a school-wide approach. And so that can look like having school-wide expectations that are really clear and consequences. Um, that doesn't mean that classrooms can't also develop their own expectations. One strategy I've seen that works really well is where a school will have somewhat broad but still clear and positively worded expectations like be respectful, be safe, those types of expectations. And then within the classroom, the students flesh those out. So those may be the rules that every classroom lives by, but each classroom, the teacher helps the students give examples of each of those rules and what they look like specifically in their unique environment. So for example, in the science lab, right, being safe might have some really specific guidelines that wouldn't come up um, in an English classroom. 
administrators have a really important role as the instructional leaders, of course, and also as the community leaders. And these approaches, positive behavior supports as a framework, restorative justice, responsive classroom, all are really community building approaches. And when administrators take the lead on that and demonstrate building relationships um, with teachers and students and families and establishing uh, these strategies that we've been talking about, that has a really powerful approach that's really greater than the sum of its of its parts. Um, and I love what you're talking about is that we're really talking about this idea of community. Um, and I think we're seeing at all sorts of different levels. Um, and I know one of the things that we've talked about in special education is oftentimes we fall into this idea of using the medical model um, when we talk about our students um, and their needs. And it seems like there's some contrast between the idea of using a medical model versus using this model of a community. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, Alexis? I agree. And I think something that turns people off from special education research and literature is that it is often quite medicalized. Uh, in fact, I was just reading uh, a journal article this morning that had great strategies and great tips and really compelling evidence. And I was thinking about whether it was something I wanted to share with your listeners, but I was really struck by how highly medicalized it was. And, and in this particular example, what I mean by that it was actually very literal. The authors drew a comparison to taking medication to cure an illness, which certainly helped clarify their point, but it left me with the feeling that there is something broken mm. or wrong with schools or children and that we need to cure it or mm -hmm. fix it. And in my opinion, that approach is is limited. And instead, an approach that focuses on building a community, a community of learners um, that supports each other, a community that is a place that you want to be as a teacher or a student is, is really important. And it's not so much about fixing um, something that's broken, but rather building something together. So Alexis, um, I've got some questions about sort of just sort of general advice about what you'd recommend um, for teachers. And I've been lucky enough to, to have a relationship with you and I can email you or call you, Alexis, what should I do? Um, but what would, you know, what sort of resources would you recommend to teachers if they want to learn more about positive behavioral support or responsive classroom in particular? Great. Well, I'll definitely share some uh, bibliography with you for your for your listeners. But a couple of starting places, if you just want a couple of nibbles um, to to whet your appetite, I really recommend the Responsive Classroom blog. They have huge number of articles that are all very short, very readable. They also have a great YouTube channel, so you can see a lot in action. So I think that's a great place to start. If you want to dive deeper into the responsive classroom world, I would start with the book Rules in School, which lays out what I was discussing earlier about establishing hopes and dreams and using those to establish expectations. And it has a great um, middle school section as well. In terms of um, more broad positive behavioral supports, my go-to resource is the IRIS Center at Vanderbilt University. So I know, Anne-Marie, you've used their materials as well, they have um, great resources, not just on behavior, on, on a lot of other topics. But if you're just beginning, they have a, a really helpful module, web-based module that walks you through where to start. And if you are have pretty solid classroom management in place, but you want to look more at responding to student behavior, they have a series of modules um, on acting out that are excellent. Uh, and so those are two places that, that I would start. So Alexis, we've covered a lot of ground today. And if folks want to learn more from you, which I highly recommend, um, what can they do? I would be so delighted to work with your listeners and I even meet them in person and work together. I have a few opportunities coming up. The most simple way is to check out my website. I have some downloadable materials related to our talk today. And that's the place where you can also sign up for my newsletter. And the newsletter will have links to an upcoming webinar. And I really hope that your listeners will join me for the webinar because we'll have a chance to go deeply into some of the topics that we touched on today. And it's a really special opportunity to reflect, 
and acknowledge what's working and you'll leave with an actual plan, a detailed action plan for enhancing your classroom community. Fantastic. And then I think you're also doing some workshops in the spring. Is that right? Yes. I have a couple workshops coming up and then I have one at the end of the year um, in Silicon Valley, the end of the school year related to literacy. So different topic, but um, if, if you'd like to join for that. And, and our, the others will be in the San Francisco area. And our listeners should absolutely come and visit you to learn more about literacy. So Alexis, you're, you've always been a really generous um, teacher and instructor. Um, and I know you're going to be sharing some resources on your website for our listeners. And what are those resources? So on your website, so um, you don't have to go too far, I'll share a handy guide to a classroom management reset. Uh, so that will be useful for those of you who are looking to spruce things up a little bit, even though it's the middle of the year. And if you come on over to my website, you can go a little bit deeper. And I have a classroom management checklist that walks you through the basics of positive behavior supports to identify what you already have in place and what you can start working on. And there I'll also have a classroom management template that is something I use with my clients to craft a plan for their classroom. So Alexis, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Um, what, what message would you like to leave our listeners with this afternoon? Thanks, Anne-Marie. I've been thinking a lot about confidence as I prepared for our conversation today. And partially, actually, because of reading your recent blog post, um, which I, I really enjoyed and was thinking about how much feeling like an imposter can undermine our success in terms of classroom management. And fake it till you make it is a definitely a useful strategy. And when in doubt, stand up straight, smile at your students, and use a firm voice is going to get you really far. But also being aware when you do have a skill gap and going that extra mile to get some support, whether that's listening to a podcast, talking to a mentor teacher, reading, going to a workshop, um, or simply observing other teachers to really um, take control and empower yourself as a teacher and as a learner so that you can build your confidence. Great. Thank you so much, Alexis. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And I hope everybody heads on over to your website to learn more from you today. Thank you, Anne-Marie. It's really been delightful to talk with you and synthesize some of these ideas that we've been talking about informally and formally all these years. so much for joining us today. Links to all of the resources we mentioned, including the behavior reset and checklist are available in today's show notes. So just go to baytreeblog.com slash podcast and search Zen of behavior. If you enjoyed the show, please let us know by reviewing us on iTunes or tweet us at BT learning. That's B is in boy, T is in Tom learning. We really look forward to hearing from you and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.